We'll begin this morning's Bible study, kind of a devotional, and we'll be in uh, Matthew chapter 16 if you want to turn there. And as you are turning there, I will ask the Lord for His blessing. And Lord, we do pray for that. We pray, Lord, that as we open Your Word, Lord, You would open our hearts and we would acknowledge, God, that not only are we reading Your Word, but You are reading, engaging our hearts and desiring to give affirmation and confirmation and correction as we study it together. And Lord, we pray for our pastor, Ross, and his family that uh, you would just bring comfort to them, Lord. You would surround them with your love and your grace. And uh, God, that uh, joy would abound in their hearts with uh, thankfulness to you, Lord, for saving and and redeeming, Lord, us. And uh, God, that they would be able to come back just refreshed and, and optimistic and ready to serve, Lord, uh, according to the work that you have them have for them in this place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, this is, this is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's definitely one of my favorite subjects. I talk about it a lot when I'm sharing the faith with people. And um, it's, a, it's a common topic. I think it's a really good thing to bring up when you just have a few moments maybe to talk about Jesus with somebody on the street. But I want you to take just a brief moment to think about what you believe are some of the most important questions in life. Maybe some of you have thought much or long or hard about these questions. Maybe some of you haven't thought about it, these questions at all. Some of you might be thinking of practical life questions like, what will I do for a career? Who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? How many children will I have? Where should I retire? How often will I get to see my grandchildren? Some of you may be thinking of more philosophical questions. What is the meaning of life? What happens when I die? What is truth? These are certainly all questions I had before I became a believer. And of course, the, um, the major philosophical questions, uh, how many licks does it take to get to the center of a Tootsie Pop? And some of my, my favorite, more important questions, why do we drive on parkways and park in driveways? Strange. Why are there interstates in Hawaii? And how come something delivered by car is called a shipment, but if delivered by ship is called cargo? <laughs> Strange. There are many, many important questions in life, and obviously some questions more important than others. And today we're going to talk about what I believe is the ultimate question, the ultimate question, and it's not, what am I going to have for lunch today after service? It's something much bigger than that. So let's read together in Matthew chapter 16 beginning in verse 13 for this morning's devotion and reflection. Matthew 16, verse 13. And we'll read through verse 20, um, but we're going to kind of spend our time on, on one major topic, and I'll talk about a few of the, the other things towards the end, but really we're focusing on this one question. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples... Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, 
Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. And so that's the portion of scripture we'll be looking at this morning. And for some context, uh, earlier in the chapters, in the, in, in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus, he had been bi- busy preaching and uh, about the kingdom of God and teaching in parables, doing miraculous miracles, rebuking the religious leaders and warning his disciples about them. And now he and his disciples slipped up into the less crowded region of Caesarea Philippi. It was there on the north east corner of Israel and uh, predominantly occupied by Greek culture. It was kind of where Jewish culture began, uh, Jewish uh, customs and culture began to fade and Greek culture was the predominant feature there. And the old city there was named Peneus after the Greek god Pan uh, that was supposedly born in a cave in that area. But Philip the Tetrarch, in his loyalty to Caesar, renamed the city Caesarea. However, since there was already a Caesarea further south and west on the Mediterranean coastline, Philip thought, well, maybe I'll just add my name to the end of it and everything will be cool. So they named it Caesarea Philippi. It was uh, sort of the last outpost of Judaism, as I had mentioned. And um, Greek culture was in full swing there. There was a lot of idol worship and Caesar worship and all sorts of spiritual chaos. And it was essentially the perfect setting for Jesus to ask this question, who do people say I am? In the other Gospels, the other accounts, we get this picture that Jesus is going away with his disciples. He had been busy doing all these things, as I mentioned, and he was seeking time to to be alone with his disciples and to be alone with his father. And so one of the other Gospels mentions that he was praying, and I can just imagine Jesus there praying all the things that had happened. He knows what's coming in the future. He's going to be going to Jerusalem. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's going to be hung upon the cross and killed and... uh, that was a, a big cup that was before him. And so this time to be able to get away and to, and to rest is kind of the apex of the Gospel of Matthew. There was all these things going on in the region of Galilee. They went up north to Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is there with his disciples. There's not all the crowds, the multitudes surrounding Jesus. He has some time with them. He's in prayer, and he's probably looking around at what's going on at Caesarea Philippi, all the idol worship, and he looks at his disciples and he asks them this question, who do people say that I am? In this text, Jesus used his favorite title for himself, Son of Man. This, of course, is a a messianic title from Daniel chapter 7. Daniel writes, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never 
be destroyed. And so Jesus there referring to his messianic title, and he was, you know, some people think, well, he said son of man. Is that kind of a denial of his divinity? And uh, he wasn't denying his, his divinity. And, um, he just loved to use this title. More than 80 times he used this title for himself in the New Testament. Uh, he simply loved to identify with humanity. And in doing so, he displayed his humility. But it's funny, it's funny to me that Jesus includes uh, this title in his question. He says, Who do people say that I the Son of Man, am. It's like he's including what they ought to answer. And uh, I, I thought it's kind of like, like Bob the Builder uh, asking, what kind of work do people say I, Bob the Builder, do? <laughs> uh, are you a dentist? <laughs> a pilot? An acrobat? He's a builder. And so Jesus is saying, it's clear who I am in reality, but what are people perceiving me as and we get their answer there in verse 14 they replied some say John the Baptist others say Elijah and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets and all these answers have a few things in common it's interesting they're all prophets they're all considered considered uh, by different people to be forerunners of the Messiah and I'll talk about that in a moment and they they would have all have had to return from the dead uh, or from heaven, and that would explain why Jesus was able to do these miraculous wonders. Now, John the Baptist, of course, was the final forerunner to Christ and was prophesied by Isaiah uh, as uh, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. We learned two chapters back in Matthew 14 that he was beheaded at the hands, at the hands of the evil tetrarch Herod. And there we read that when Herod heard about Jesus, he said, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. And Elijah, of course, was that great prophet from the Old Testament who was taken up to heaven. And uh, it's curious, why would uh, they say Jesus was the prophet Elijah? Well, in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, the Lord says, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And so the Jews were expecting Elijah to come before the Messiah. And it's because of this prophecy that at a, at a Jewish, Jewish Passover table, uh, you would see an empty chair. And if you were to ask the host, why is there an empty chair at the table, the, the host would tell you that, uh, that that chair is for Elijah. And we're waiting for Elijah to come. And when Elijah takes his seat at the table, we know that the Messiah is not too far behind. And so some supposed it was Elijah who had come back from heaven as a precursor to the Messiah. Jeremiah is named here. And um, it's kind of strange also why is Jer Jeremiah named here. Well, perhaps it was because of a Jewish folklore that claimed that before the Messiah returns, Jeremiah would appear and restore the hidden Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense to the temple. And then that would uh, be one of the things that would usher in the, um, the coming of the Messiah. And others simply thought that he was some resurrected prophet of old. They couldn't really identify him, but they just believed that he was a prophet come back from the dead. And so there was these two main things in common. The fact that he was 
They believed that he was a forerunner to the Messiah and that uh, he had to have come back from the dead, come back from heaven, from God, in order to be able to do these miraculous signs. Now, of course, there were other things that people called Jesus. Uh, he was called Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. He was, he, they, they said that he was demon-possessed, and that's how he was able to cast out demons. Um, they called him a, a glutton and a sinner. And so it's interesting that the disciples choose kind of the more mild uh, identifications that people were sharing. And it was kind of the general consensus of the mass of the people. Uh, those other bad things were more of the religious leaders who were envious of Jesus and his rule and his ministry. And so also perhaps, you know, the people saw in Jesus the character and intensity of John the Baptist, the fire and fervor of Elijah, or the weeping and the lamenting woefulness of Jeremiah. Jesus certainly displayed these characteristics. All of these identities would be a complement for an ordinary man, but of course they fall tragically, tragically short of the real truth about who Jesus was, his identity. And so Jesus gets these answers from his disciples, and he has a follow-up question. He turns to them. He says, what about you? Who do you say I am? Here he turns the question emphatically onto his disciples. And I believe, as I mentioned before, that this is the ultimate question. Not just asked for the disciples in this time of retreat away from the world and away from the pressures and, uh, and the um, dangers of being this up-and-coming leader, religious leader in the uh, region of Israel. But a question for us as well, the ultimate question, who is Jesus? And most of you know that how you answer this question will determine your eternal destiny. And this is why it's one of my favorite things to ask somebody when I go out witnessing. I'll just, one of the things I'll ask them maybe is, uh, who is Jesus? And um, we'll talk about some different answers uh, as we get further along in the study here. But, um, you know, think about this question. Think about the implications of this question. Who is Jesus? This is the main question. The Bible says that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We stand before God and we have to give an account for our lives. And if we are unable to satisfy the righteous requirements of God on, based on our own life, then we are going to be separated from God, cast out from His presence, and placed in a place of eternal torment, separated from the love of God forever. The Bible says it's a place of eternal torment and punishment. And so this is a very, very important question to answer. And this has been called the final examination for humanity. It's a one-question final exam. And your answer determines your eternal destiny. It doesn't only determine your eternal destiny, of course. It determines your experience here in this short-term, temporary human life as well. All other questions, all other important questions, they all fall under the jurisdiction of your answer to this question of who is Jesus. The question, what is truth? 
Pilate asked that question. What's the meaning of life? I asked that question uh, before I became a believer. Do I have a purpose? Is there a sovereign will for my life? They all fall under this one question. And uh, not only philosophical questions, but practical questions especially. Questions like, who should I marry? Should I marry someone who believes the same thing I do or not? How should I work? Should I work as somebody who just simply does enough to get by and working only when I'm noticed or only when uh, my supervisors see me? Or do I work as one who works unto the Lord who is always watching? How should I speak to others as someone who is accountable for every word that comes from our mouth will be held to account? Or as somebody who feels like I'm free to go and slander and gossip and talk maliciously or speak lies or profanities or whatever it might be. These questions are answered under that ultimate question. Everything is affected by your answer to this question. From your marriage, your parenting, your relationships, your attitude, your speech, your character, to your work ethic, your time management, your investments, the way you prepare your taxes. Everything is answered under the category of this question. Get it wrong. And you wander through this life as a lost soul, purposeless, hopeless, and separated from your loving Creator, destined to perish in eternal loss and torment forever. Get the answer right, and you become a new creation. The Bible says, therefore, anyone who is found in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, and the new has come. New creation with power to live this life to the full. Rich blessings from God and the assurance of eternal life. Everything is riding on your answer, on my answer to this one question. And let's see what the disciples answer. Let's see if they get the question right. Verse 15. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This isn't uh, just a hesitant answer uh, from some, you know, shy uh, school children. A lot of times in youth group, I'll ask a question and nobody will answer, and I'll ask another question and maybe a hand will slip up, and everybody thinks it's a trick question or something like that. This wasn't a trick question. It was a, it was a question that is to be answered, and Peter answers it uh, very boldly. He doesn't just say hesitatingly, you're... The Christ, the Son of the living God. This is a formal confession. And uh, we can tell a little bit about that by the way that Matthew uses Peter's name here. He calls him Simon Peter, both of his given names. This is a formal confession. Simon, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter was the spokesman for the rest of the disciples. We see that throughout all uh, of the Gospels. In the Gospel of John, you might remember, Jesus is there amongst his disciples and other people who are following him, um, who might look on the outside uh, like his disciples, but Jesus knew their hearts. He knew that some were only following him out of curiosity or for false motives, whatever it might be. And so he turned to them and he said, uh, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Whoa, that's a hard saying. And people didn't understand 
what was happening there, even though Jesus followed up and said, these words that I speak are spirit and life. And so the people thought, this is a hard saying. Of course, it was wrong. It's wrong in any case to eat somebody's flesh and drink someone's blood. But Jesus was speaking in spiritual matters here. And many people turned and left Jesus from that day forward. They no longer followed him. It was like Jesus was dividing the wheat from the weeds. And he turned to his disciples, to those who remained and didn't walk away as Jesus drew that line in the sand. And he said to them, What about you? Are you going to leave as well? And it was Simon, Peter, who answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. That's in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 68 and 69. And so Peter here is answering for the disciples collectively. And his answer is interesting. And uh, there's a few things that we can note in it. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ. Christ, we know, is the title given uh, to Jesus. It, it is the Greek form of the word Messiah, which simply means the anointed one. He's the one. That's it. He is the one. I tell my students, I like to, I like to, to make sure, quiz the students uh, in what uh, uh, different words in the scripture mean. Simple words too. Names that we hear all the time and might take for granted. Jesus, Christ, you know, it's not just his first and last name. I used to think, like many people did, that that was the case. But Jesus, Jesus, the name comes from God is salvation. Jesus being the English transliteration of Yesu, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yeshua. <laughs> it's Jehovah Shua put together, and that's where we get Jesus. God is salvation. And then Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And so when we see the name Jesus Christ, it's like we are reading a banner that says, God is salvation. This is who we, what we talk about when we see Jesus Christ. God is salvation, the one, the anointed one. He is the one. Jesus Christ is the one. And so we have the word Christ there. He's not a prophet. He's not a forerunner uh, to the Christ, as these other people were reporting or believing. But he is indeed the Christ himself. And then he says... Uh, not only the Christ, but the Son of the living God. And this was something that was difficult for me when I was uh, a new believer and just getting into the Scripture. And I thought of uh, the word Son and, and how uh, that applies to Jesus and how that works out with the Father. And it's still a mystery. It is, it is a mystery. Um, but um, I later learned that uh, Son doesn't just mean a a bio, isn't just a biological term of uh, somebody being born uh, to somebody else. Um, it's really it really car carries the meaning of uh, the same in essence or in nature. And so when you see uh, in John, maybe ch John chapter three verse sixteen, some translations say, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son." that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Really what's being said there is that uh, Jesus, uh, begotten of the Father, is one in essence and in nature with the Father. And we read that this morning in the call to worship there in Philippians. He is 
uh, in this very same essence, very same nature God. He is the physical manifestation, the physical representation of God. And we see him affirm that throughout the scriptures. And how crazy it must have been to have this experience with Jesus there in the flesh. And Pastor Ross talks about this a lot, and sometimes in the office or uh, when we're somewhere, we'll, we'll talk about the reality of God in the flesh and how crazy that must have been. And, and one of the things we talk about is the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Jesus has this conversation with this woman, and this woman, assuming that this man is just some ordinary poor guy who's in desperate need of a drink of water, and they strike up this conver- conversation, and Jesus reveals himself as the Messiah, he reveals himself as the Son of God. <laughs> and at that point, you know, Ross and I say, I would have fallen into the well dead, just like, Jesus, you know, God in the flesh. That's so amazing. Just fall over and die. Uh, there, I don't know how that could be the case. It's a, it's a mystery. It's an awesome, miraculous mystery. But Jesus, God in the flesh, flesh the Son of God, I, and I was thinking of, of the um, of this word son, and I, I remembered this joke that cracked me up in a book that I read. But I'll, I'll let you guys try to answer. Don't answer it if you really know, okay? Because then you ruin it, you know. But uh, what do zebras have? Stripes that no other animal has. <laughs> what do zebras have that no other animals have? Not stripes. Other animals have stripes. Yeah, the answer is baby zebras. <laughs> because baby zebras are, in essence, the same, in nature, the same as other zebras. And so, anyways, I thought that was an interesting way to put it. And so we have Jesus, the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not only the Son of Man, as he calls himself, and as uh, he asserts his messianic a title there. He's the Son of God. And He's not just the Son of God. He's the Son of the living God. As opposed to all these dead idols that were being worshipped there in the region of Caesarea Philippi. People fashioning idols out of their own hands and bowing down to them and worshipping them and calling them their gods. Isaiah talks about the folly, the foolishness of that, saying somebody will go out and gather some wood in the forest and then they'll come back and they'll chop the wood in half and they'll use some of it to burn and warm themselves in front of the fire and out of the other half they'll fashion for themselves a god and bow down to it and worship it. It is just complete folly. It's foolishness. And so Simon Peter here asserts and gives the answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. What's the verdict of this answer? Is this answer correct? Well, Jesus replied, we see there in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Blessed. Oh, how happy. And not just the happy by circumstance, but this holy joy that comes from recognizing and acknowledging and knowing God. John said, Jesus said, this is eternal life in the Gospel of John, chapter 17 and verse 3. He said, this is eternal life, to know God and the one and true God, the one and only true God and the one whom he sent. That's where blessed joy comes from. That's where this blessedness comes from. Acknowledging, correctly acknowledging, there is a God in heaven. 
He is a living God, and He has a Son begotten of the Father, in one, uh, one with the Father in nature and in essence, that has come and laid down His life for me, and has taken care of all of my worries, all of my fears, all of my doubts. He has removed all of those things from my life, so I can live in this holy joy of knowing Him, being known by Him, and the joy of making Him known to others. And so he says, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, using his full name there, for this was not revealed to you by man, or really by flesh and blood. This didn't come from any revelation from man, any discovery. Men didn't find this. Men didn't go and and search for this and, and discover it for themselves. This came as revelation from God. This is a a revelation of truth, not from man, but by the Father in heaven. And I can't help but think that it, you know, as the disciples watched the ministry of Jesus Christ, he was there doing miracles, and the miracles attest to his Messiahship, they attest to his divinity. What else was he doing? He was forgiving sin. Only something, something only, only that God can do. He was being worshipped and receiving worship. Something that is, uh, only, should only be done before God. So this revelation was brought to Peter, not by his own discovery, not by his own finding, but by a revelation from God. Jesus says in the scriptures that, um, that only those uh, uh, that the Father has revealed himself to will Uh, fall in relationship with and follow Christ. It has to come by revelation. And the greatest revelation that we have of God and of truth is the person, the work of Jesus Christ. And of course, the written word that affirms and, um, and magnifies and presents to us the living word, Jesus himself. And uh, anybody, anybody who comes to this information, who comes to this knowledge of Christ does it not on their own but through revelation from God and that's how it was for me I remember when I first started coming to church and uh, I had no idea what church was for what the purposes of church uh, was and 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 what I should be doing why people went to church I my answer when somebody asked me if you wanted if uh, invited me to come to church I said well people who go to church seem to be happy so I'll give it a try, because at that time I wasn't happy, and that's what I was looking for. And I came to church there in Sebastopol, Calvary Chapel, Sebastopol, this very same church before it moved to Santa Rosa. There's like 20, 30 people there. And I sat in the seat, the little Costco folding chair there, and for the first time I heard the gospel message being revealed to me. And it was out of this world, quite literally. It was so powerful. It was so gripping and shocking that I just couldn't deny it. Where did this information come from? And as I began to learn and hear the message of God's word and the gospel message, the message of Christ more and more, I began uh, seeing what God was revealing to me through this message, through the work of His Son. And I went to a men's Bible study, and uh, there was four or five of us gathered there, and we were in the book of Romans. And I remember hearing that God speaks to us through His Word, and I couldn't quite figure that out yet uh, because I, I, was, I didn't know which way was up or down or left or right. 
And so everything was being straightened out in my life. And we're there in Romans chapter 7 where there, Paul has this dilemma of the flesh and the spirit working in his life, fighting for his allegiance. And he says, I know the things that I ought to do, but I can't do them. The things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just in this battle. My sinful nature versus the nature of the spirit. And I was reading, and it was like the words came out. And I can't exp- I mean, I, I didn't see this, but this is what it felt like. Like the words came out in 3D and just went into my heart and just grabbed a hold of me. And God said, that's who you are. And he revealed himself to me there. And, and he was revealing t- himself to me. And then it wasn't long after that, I went and took a trip up to my uh, parents' house. And I was driving in my truck. I was probably uh, 20 minutes away. And, and I was just minding my own business, not really thinking of anything. I mean, I'd been thinking about the events of my life, um, all the chaos and destruction that had been going on. And thinking about this new experience I was having in church and I was just listening to the radio and all of a sudden God started revealing himself to me and I began weeping and I was driving and I started weeping violently which isn't a good thing but fortunately I was off in some back country road and so there wasn't really any other traffic and and I just drove and all these thoughts and and revelations were coming from the Lord about my life and about my purpose and my existence and I was just overwhelmed and I finally got to my parents house I you know jumped out of the truck you know before it stopped rolling and ran into the busted through the door ran into the house everybody was doing business as usual my mom was there in the kitchen and my dad was watching tv my siblings somewhere in the back rooms or whatever I came in blubbering like a fool and, uh, you know, just kind of speechless, kind of like, um, uh, was, it, um, was it Zechariah who had the revelation in the temple? And he came out and he was speechless. He was struck dumb. And I, I came in and I was like, uh, like this. And my mom looked at me and she got hysterical and she said, what's wrong? She started asking me all these questions, you know, did you get in an accident? Did you hit somebody, you know? All these questions, I said, ah, and my dad is just kind of there, what's going on? And, and I, I didn't know what else to say, and I said, I, I just got to pray, we got to pray. And so, I, um, <laughs> my mom came, you know, nobody, especially at this time, was interested in, in the things of God or paying attention to these things. And so this was really weird and foreign and alien, and, and so I, I invited everybody to come and, and sit there on our knees in the living room and I even went uh, you know to my dad who you've heard before my relationship with him uh, wasn't that great uh, all the way up to this point and I grabbed his hand and he said what's going on and I said I, I just want to pray and he kind of chuckled awkwardly and just kind of like this is weird and we all got on the floor there and I just started praying I started thanking God for revealing himself to me for revealing different things in my life and for, for bringing healing and understanding about things. And uh, uh, during the prayer, the tone or the, the feel of everybody went from awkward and hesitant to soft and weeping and, and uh, understanding. And my brother was crying. And, and when uh, I said amen, my dad patted me on the back and said, that was good. 
And then, just as sudden as it had come when I was driving, that feeling just left. It went, and we all got up and ate pizza and watched TV. <laughs> that was it. But the point is, is that God was revealing Himself. This wasn't something discovered. This wasn't something found. This came not by the hands or the insight of man, but by my Father in heaven who had been revealing himself to me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And most of you in this room, many of you, all of you, have experienced that revelation of God. And you are able to answer emphatically with Simon Peter, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And uh, that's the, you know, that's the, the... the basic gist, this devotion of this question that's uh, being asked here, but want to just kind of go over in closing these last few verses. They're um, sometimes they're uh, hard to understand. They're misunderstood. It's conf- it can be confusing to people. There's a lot of different ideas, and and it, and um, the main reason is just because it has to do in the context has to do a lot with what's going on here in this question and this discussion with his disciples, and so. After Jesus says, um, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. He says there in verse 18, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And, you know, there's some different interpretations out there uh, about what this means. The Catholic Church, of course, interprets it as uh, Peter being the being appointed as the supreme authority over the church, and and uh, that's where we get the papacy from. And and um, he has uh, this authority, this apostolic authority over the church because it's on this rock. You know, Peter. The word Peter means rock. It's what. Uh, Jesus named him. It's a different word in the Greek. It's Petros there for Peter and, and, and Petra for um, for on this rock I will build my church. And so there's kind of a word play going on there. Um, but I think I think the main point here of this is uh, not that the um, authority is being delegated to Peter necessarily. And let's just do something just in, in, in our Bible study because uh, it, um, I think it fits. Let's just skip there to verse 21 and read through this uh, uh, this next passage just quickly to get some other uh, understanding here. It said, after this passage that we had read, it said, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And of course, Jesus goes on and talks about the cost of being a disciple. But here he goes from calling Peter this rock uh, supposedly upon which Christ would build the church. And here he calls Peter Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block. Not the rock on which I will build my church, but the rock that is laid before me, causing me to trip and to stumble. Because you do not have the, thi- the in mind the things of men, or of God, but the things of men. I think really, back to our passage here in verse 18, I think really what's going on is 
Jesus is acknowledging this confession that Peter had made. And I think it directly correlates with Peter. I don't think it's just separated from Peter. I think he's saying, Peter, you are Peter. And you are the Peter that made this confession. And on you, Peter, with this confession, this is where I will build my church. This is the good confession, the great confession on which the church will be built. This is the foundation by word of the church. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Without that, there is no church. Organizations can attach the word church or the idea of church uh, to their name all they want, but without the acknowledgement as Jesus Christ being the Messiah, the Son of the living God, it's not a church. It's Jesus' church, and he built it upon the profession of faith given by Peter. And so all of us enter in as we profess these things, um, this truth, we enter in and build upon this foundation that Christ has laid for the church. In fact, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul talks about this and he says that God's household, the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He's the one who has brought uh, this um, foundation to be, and he's building his church upon it. And real quickly here, the, uh, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. The church, through good time, through bad time, the church will always remain. It will never uh, be destroyed by death. In fact, when death comes to, the, to uh, members of the church, the church seems to grow, especially through martyrdom. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This isn't just some authority that Jesus is throwing out and saying, here, now I had these keys, I'm done using them. Pretty soon I'm going to go to the cross, go away. Somebody's got to be raised up to be the key holder. You go now and have this authority. What he's saying here is simply, because of this profession that you made, you are able to unlock the door for others to enter into eternity or to keep the door locked for them to not enter based on the rejection of Jesus Christ. It's really simple. It's really simply. And in, in, the, in the Greek, it really says, whatever uh, you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. All you are doing is agreeing with the authority God has already laid down. And you are able then, as a representative of Christ, to confirm to somebody based on their belief and faith and repentance or based on their rejection and opposition to the gospel whether they are able to enter um, eternal life and uh, then he warned his disciples not to uh, tell anyone that he was the Christ and the final point you know they weren't everybody wanted to appoint Jesus as the king, as the ruler. And I think this is the main reason they said maybe he's one of the prophets, one of the forerunners. Because he's not doing what we want him to do. He's not doing what we think the Messiah came to do, which is to come and give us political freedom from the Gentile reign that, and oppression that's been going on all these years. Uh, that's not what Jesus came to do. And, and so he said, like he said many times in the scripture, my time has not come yet. Plus, this revelation comes from God. Later, he'll give the disciples the great commission to go out and make, dis make disciples of all nations and preaching the gospel to them. But at this time, the people did not identify Jesus correctly.
And that's a good reminder to pray. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we thank you for this, uh, this word. Lord, we thank you for this encouragement, this reminder, Lord, that our life, our hope as we sing, is built on nothing less than the solid rock of Christ and our profession of faith in him. That the question of who is Jesus is the ultimate question that determines every other uh, answer in our life to important questions. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us, that you've given us your word to study, and you've reminded us in your word there in in Matthew chapter 7 that whoever hears your word is like the man who built his house upon a rock. And when the storms of life came and beat against that house, it was able to withstand because it was built on the stable rock, the rock of Jesus Christ and his word. So we thank you, Lord. Help us to build upon that foundation. Help us to build upon that work with our profession, along with Simon Peter, that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.